The Daily Rios, episode 388, New Comics Wednesday and Reviews. Hey everyone, this is Peter, here to take a look at new comics shipping this week of Wednesday, July 26th. I said new, but really, we're hitting nostalgia for the first three recommendations, starting with a new edition for Matt Wagner's Trinity trade paperback from DC Comics for $19.99. This was from 2003. The colorist is Dave Stewart, the letterer Sean Connett. In this story, Ra's al Ghul recruits Bizarro and Artemis to help him create global chaos. So Batman finds himself working with Superman and Wonder Woman. This is Earth's greatest heroes, as they are forced to band together if they can work out their differences. Now, I'm, rec- I'm recommending this because uh, mostly because I've never read it. I love the Trinity concept, but I have not read this uh, little miniseries. It was originally three issues in a prestige format, I believe. Um, The final episode that I recorded for DC Noise before handing it off dealt with the Trinity's history within the DC universe. And, you know, that's going back many years. So I'm kind of curious, like, why didn't I read this one yet? So I thought I would give it a recommendation to maybe give me a boost to read it. And it's also curious that it echoes what's going on right now with DC Rebirth in um, Red Hood and the Outlaws, because that team is comprised of Jason Todd, Bizarro, and Artemis. So it's the same Superman and Wonder Woman um, family member, but not quite the same Batman family member. So there you go, Uh, Matt Wagner's uh, Trinity. Let me know if you've read that and what you think of it. And then Marvel is putting out another collection of Avengers Operation Galactic Storm for $39.99. This is collecting the 1992 storyline that crossed over in Avengers, Avengers West Coast, Quasar, Wonder Man, Iron Man, Thor, and Captain America. It's the Kree versus the Shi'ar Empire with Earth in the middle. And then you have Skrulls and the Imperial Guard, the Starjammers, the Kree Star Force, Deathbird makes an appearance, Ronan the Accuser, the Supreme Intelligence. I love it. I loved this crossover back at the time. I uh, sold it on eBay um, when I was, you know, really in my eBay mode at the beginning of, of the 2000s. Sold it for quite a lot of money. I then went and bought all the back issues again. I think I sold it one more time on eBay and then got all the issues again. So I actually have um, all of the issues in my collection once more. There is a what-if story, maybe one or two issues of a what-if story that kind of connects to it. I don't know if that's being collected in this uh, new edition. As I said, it's one of my favorite um, Marvel crossover stories. You gotta love that early Steve Epting art and that that era of the Avengers where they wore the brown jackets. You know, we're talking Cersei and Black Knight and Hercules. Uh, such a good storyline. Such a good storyline. And really, it's kind of a no-brainer why they would want to put this out again. It's it's rare that Marvel has an evergreen that they can, uh, you know, continue, continuously trade. But a lot of the concepts and a lot of the characters in this crossover um are featured in, you know, what's going on right now with the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I think the only thing really missing is the Guardians of Ga- of the Galaxy. I don't believe they make an appearance in this crossover, but it's been a while since I've read it. And then the third throwback to this same era is Bloodstrike Remastered. 
It's a one shot. It's a, a remastering of 1993's Blood Strike Number One to celebrate the 25th anniversary, a year early, I guess. Rob Liefeld, Eric Stevenson, yes, the guy running Image today, Danny Miki, and Dan Fraga. Um, do we even hear some of these names in comics anymore th- these days? I mean, maybe. I just don't know. Um, Bloodstrike. Sure, I bought it. Of course I did back at the day, back in the day. I didn't stick with it. I think I only even ever purchased the first issue or at least the first three issues. But uh, I'm not getting it. <laughs> it's being recolored by uh, Thomas Mason uh, for this remastering. But, uh, you know, it's only $3.99. So if you're hankering for some image throwback, there you go. Next up, also from Image, we have Street Angel Gang Hardcover. Also a reprint of stuff that um, uh, was produced, uh, I think this was way back in 2004. This is from Jim Rugg and Brian Maruka. Uh, This is about Jesse Sanchez, who was a kung fu master on a skateboard and a homeless orphan failing seventh grade. It's described as a cross between the A-Team, a xenomorph, and Lacey Baker, uh, she loves food, fist fights, hanging out with friends, skateboarding, candy, pizza, grilled cheese, French fries, moon pies, Twinkies, etc., etc., etc. And uh, it asks the question, what if Kal-El had been found by the Warriors instead of the Kents? As I said, this was published back in the early 2000s, originally under Slave Labor Graphics, then Ad House Books. And uh, this is a uh, $19.99. This was one of the first indie titles um, that I was exposed to in the early 2000s when I started to really pay attention to comics coverage on the net. Uh, This is even prior to podcasting. Um, I think it was probably around the time that I was starting my own homepage, my own AOL homepage or or place on the the internet that I... um, uh, I think you can find it here on the Daily Rio site, as a matter of fact. And uh, so, yeah, it, it, it's one of the earliest indie books that I can remember at that time um, reading about and wanting to and wanting to read. I think I have some of those slave uh, labor graphic issues. Um, there was a Street Angel short film, apparently, uh, maybe around 2009. You can see the trailer on YouTube. I, I have yet to find the actual film. Um, it doesn't look very good, but, you know. It was an, an attempt, <laughs> to say the least. From adaptive books, we have Hype, the graphic novel called Hype by Jimmy Palmiotti, Justin Gray, Alessio Nocerino, Javier Pina. Uh, the blurb here is, The United States military has a secret weapon, an individual who wields the superhuman abilities of immense intellect, speed, power, and strength. The cost? His power only lasts... 45 minutes a day and it's described as romantic science fiction thriller this was a kickstarter from last year uh, and now they're putting it out it's twelve dollars and 99 cents uh i i saw some preview pages if if you're someone who likes um superhero comics and you like thriller but uh not necessarily in the vein of like ed brubaker or sean phillips but in um you know, more more in the comic book style. I think you might uh, enjoy this. And then we have four, count them, four reference material books that are out this week. And as usual, 
All links to previews and websites will be on will be in the show notes. But um, I'll just give a quick rundown of what these are. The first two are from University Press of Mississippi, so they're going to be a little bit expensive. We have Comics Art in China, a hardcover that provides the history of almost all comics art forms in mainland China from the 19th century to the present, as well as perspectives on both the industry and the art form. And that's for 65 bucks. Then we have Jim Shooter Conversations hardcover for $40, taking a look at Jim Shooter as an American comic book writer, editor, and businessman. From Abrams, we have Kirby King of Comics, a soft cover, a new revised and expanded edition for $25 by Mark Evanier, who is someone who knows Jack Kirby very well. This was first issued in 2008, and it is now available in a smaller, more affordable package, and it has expanded material for Kirby's Centennial. And from Tomorrow's Publishing... Reed Crandall, illustrator of comics. Comic art historian Roger Hill has compiled an extensive history of Crandall's life and career from his early years and major successes through his, t- uh, through his tragic decline and passing in 1982. Crandall gained a reputation as the artist's artist, working on Golden Age superheroes Dollman, The Ray, and Blackhawk, which was his signature character, and then eventually horror and sci-fi for EC Comics. He worked on Warren Publishing's uh, Creepy, Eerie, and Blazing Combat, The Thunder Agents, Edgar Rice Burroughs' characters, and even Flash Gordon for King Features. There you have it. My recommendations for this week for New Comics Wednesday. Hey everyone, I'm Jay. I'm Colin. And we're two scruffy-looking nerf herders. We like to talk about all things Star Wars. Comics, movies, books, games. Latest theories. The latest series, all different kinds of reviews on this show, Star Wars Conversations. Many boffins died to bring us this podcast. All right, let's do some reviews. First up... One of my recommendations from last week, we have Generation Gone number one from Image Comics. This is by Alish Kott and Andre Arariujo. Coloring by Chris O'Halloran, letters by Clayton Cowles, and designed by Tom Muller. This is $4.99. It is oversized, around 50 pages, I think. And I would read the blurb, but I have to say that um, once I got in... To the to into the book. Once I got into reading it, the blurb doesn't necessarily set you up uh, well. Um, not in a bad way either. I think the blurb is much more um, much more sci-fi and much much bigger. Right? It talks about America, 2020, three young hackers, nothing to lose, a secretive scientist with a plan. What happens when you're poor, angry, and get superpowers you never asked for? And I mean that's all in there. But it's not quite as bombastic as maybe um, the tone of the blurb felt to me. Uh, This has been described as Skins meets Unbreakable with bits of Akira. And if you go with that, I can can see that. That Now now I'm sort of um, in the mode, right? Skins, although I haven't seen 
I think I saw like one or two episodes. Um, there's a pulse about skins, you know, the way the characters relate, the the inner character play, the romances, the relationships. That's there in Generation Gone. Unbreakable, I think maybe what it gets from from Unbreakable is the pacing and the tone. Sometimes a very quiet tone and a very slow pacing. You almost have to give yourself over to this book. You can't just go in and sit back and go, all right, here we go, entertain me, right? You, there's a pulse to it in the way that, um, you know, something like American Splendor or, um, I don't know, for lack of a better movie, like Lost in Translation, where you, the movie breathes and you sort of have to breathe with it. And then uh, the Akira uh, acknowledgement or the Akira connection, you can see it in the artwork, you can see it in the cityscapes, uh, apparently, the artist uh, is an architect, and I, I believe that. Um, a lot of times, there's there is a sense of crowdedness, uh, but then in other in other places, it kind of opens up. Um, and certainly, the story you have these three youths, you have this scientist that is mixed up with his military complex, um, and you have the promise of powers and something larger than everybody. And all of that, you know, obviously strikes a chord if you know Akira. The art also reminded me, in a way, of Steve Dillon. And one or two times, some of the characters, especially the main scientist, had a design that uh, made me feel like he was a Rugrats character come to life. Like he was a Rugrats adult come to life. And I don't know, that's probably not a compliment, but it just was something that poked out in my brain. So the handful of things that I read from Alishkot, uh, I enjoyed. So I thought, you know, I'm always going to give at least the first issue a try. And that's what I did here. And I'm interested. I'm, I'm, I'm going to keep checking it out. I'm going to see where he's going uh, with the story. It's not necessarily groundbreaking. And I don't think that's his point. Um, I think he wants to bring in readers into things that he's thinking about um, at this time. When you read interviews with him you get a sense that um, this is someone who has been through a lot. Um, he has been away from comics for a little bit. He's in therapy. He's uh, in therapy to try to make sense of things that have gone on in his childhood. He talks about gender identity issues. Um, he, had a, he had a sickness there for a while. And all of it is uh, coming out in this story and in the way that he wants to write comics. Whereas before, a lot of his, his ideas were more archetypal and uh, were, were, had these really grand themes. Um, this one, he felt he wanted to dig in a little into a little more of the personal side and develop characters that um, kind of put you as a reader into their minds and into their situations. And there are some passages here where there are no words, there's no dialogue, and you're just exploring what is going on in their minds through the artwork and through the collaboration of writer and artist, through their, through their facial expressions, through the shadows, the mood, what's going on around them, what's going on in their lives. Um, you have uh, the one young girl, Elena, who has to take care of a sick, sick mother. She has two jobs. Um, she's in a relationship with one of the other characters named Nick, who is verbally abusive, emotionally abusive to her and to their relationship. Um, but she clearly loves him dearly, but is hurt by this relationship. And and then you have 
Baldwin, who is a black youth and um, who is has a drive. He's kind of the leader of these three hackers, um, at, but he lives alone and he's very conscious uh, about um, political stuff that's going on at the time as well. So the three of them make an interesting mix of friends as they try to hack into this military complex, um, DARPA. And um, they've been going on some trial runs. Nothing has happened. There's been no feedback. Uh, nobody, is, nobody even knows that they're doing this hacking. Um, so they're going to try one more major attempt to try to break into the Bank of America and get money for all of them. But what they don't know is that there is a scientist... Mr. Akio, who is totally aware of what they're doing, and he sees in them potential for a project that he has brought to DARPA um, that um, the military complex just won't allow. They're working on some other project for the military, but he has this new idea called Utopia, and he wants to try it out, but of course they won't give him funding. So through the process of you know him knowing what these hackers are doing, he manages to uh, dump the project, dumped the um, experiment onto them in a way that uh, I'll talk about in, in a moment. One of the areas that uh, Alesh wants to talk about with this book is the idea of technology. And, and that technology is not moral, it's not immoral, it just is. And it's how we work with it that um, pushes it into uh, right and wrong. So this research scientist, Mr. Akio, he has this idea of what's called coding. And he talks to, he has this presentation to the military complex and, and to this board. And he says, look, you know, when you read books as a kid, books can transform you. They can transform your thinking, your physicality, your point of view. It's, it's hardwiring into your brain and, and into your body and into your ideals. And it's more or less coding. Um, and what he proposes is that he has developed three different codes that when read together can actually instill in, in people superhuman powers um, through the process of brain rewri rewriting or, or DNA rewriting or whatever. So it's an interesting, you know, very sci-fi kind of um, uh, concept. Um, it's not necessarily explained to the minute, minute detail, but I don't think that's the point. You know, once that once that proposal is discussed in the book, and then you meet these three young characters, you sort of know where it's going to go by the end of um, by the end of issue one. It's where it's going to go after this that uh, I think is the intriguing part. It's not unlike that movie Chronicle, where uh, you know these these young characters get powers, and then it's what what do they do with them after that? Now, because these three young characters could be described as millennials, this is another thing that Aleshkot is playing around with. Um, he's he's very aware of um, you know what's going on now, what's going on in the present, and um, it's something that he wants to address with this uh, with this book. You know, um, how can someone be fully present? So that they are aware and, and giving respect to what is going on um, around them, um, especially if it means that someone is, is trying to subjugate them, someone is trying to um, wipe out who they are because of um, their wealth. Maybe they're poor, they're queer, they're people of color, um, they're people of Islam, they're, uh, you know, 
He says at one point, it's not enough to survive. We must also find ways to live, to unite, to prosper. And and that's where this story is coming from. And using uh, the young millennials, you know, he says, look, there's a tension. There's a tension between, um, you know, modern society and what we call millennials and that millennials are lazy. So it's this tension between what we're being told about a certain group and then what they actually are. So, you know, what we're told about millennials is that they are lazy. What they are is a generation that received uh, a broken society. So in comparison to Cal Exit, which I talked about last week, which is in the near future and is on a much broader scale, right? It's about the secession of California. The characters are larger than life. There's some humor. There's violence. Um, this one is being told to make you aware of what's going on right now and what's going on around you um, and what's going on with your with your brains and connections and communities, you know, something honest, an honest connection, an honest look around you right now and who you are in, in your world. It's funny, I even saw a tweet today that said something like, if millennials are killing everything, movies, beer, shopping, then they aren't soft. They're probably the most brutal generation ever. <laughs> I thought that was kind of funny, especially having read this book. I like this idea. I like this idea of coding. And and as I said, it's not explained necessarily to the detail, but I look back at my own comic book reading and I talk, I've talked about this before and sometimes I get ridiculed for, for it, but Alan Moore wrote a book called Birth Call and I read it one time at about three in the morning and uh, it was a long read. It probably took about 45 minutes to an hour to read. After I put it down, I got up and got rid of all the memorabilia, all the junk, all the little tchotchkes and all the little whatever that I was still holding on to from high school. You know, I was in college at the time or uh, just out of college. And I had, you know, I threw away three bags of clothing and and love letters and, um, you know, little swatches of whatever. And I just said, why am, why do I need this? You know, the the... That book affected me like that. You know, it made me say, stop holding on to these things. They don't mean anything, right? Um, and that's not quite what he's talking about here, but it, it, it's kind of similar. I read in an interview somewhere where Alesh said that uh, he believes that the Roger Stern, Ramita Sr. Spider-Man stories is the superhero run that um, probably stuck with him the most in terms of... Um, creativity and imagination. And then he also references Jurassic Park and Frankenstein as influential works. Um, coding, I, I, you know, I like it. I kind of like what he has to say about that. And it, I'll be curious to see where he takes this story. The other thing I liked about this book, um, the first, the cover is actually the first page. There's dialogue on the cover that leads right into the first page of the book, the, in, the interior first page. It's very Dave Sim. It's very Cerebus in that way. Um, and all of the characters and, and, and this world, um, not only with the three younger characters, but even in the military complex, everyone seems sad. Everyone seems like they're just a silhouette of themselves. And I'm, and I think about like what's going on in the world today. And I think, yeah, I get that. So does everyone around me when I'm riding the subway into center city, Philly, um, there's, there's an oppression there's uh, this weight on everybody's shoulders. Um, it's, it's very interesting how you can feel 
such a thing. Uh, I can I, I look back at other major events in the world, like after 9-11 and how quiet it was um, after that day. Um, or when Obama became president for the first time, was elected president for the first time, and how how different uh, it felt to walk around Philadelphia the day after that. And then, of course, after the election in November, what that was like the day after when I, um, you know, when I had to go into Center City. And, and I get it. I get that sort of sense from this book that these people are living in a world that um, doesn't want them to be in it. And um, that's, that's scary. That's really scary. Tonally, I think this book is very different from Alesha's other comic book uh, stuff. And I appreciate that. And um, I also enjoyed the packaging. Like I said, it took a while to read. I actually took my time to read it. I thought the pacing made me slow down, maybe pay attention. It's $4.99, but um, you get about 50 pages worth of comic here. So Generation Gone. Sorry I rambled a little bit about that, but if that's something that... Uh, I, I think if you're a hardcore DC Marvel, you're probably not going to like this. But if you're willing to let a story develop slowly and... Um, uh, you want to support something that uh, is just, you know, it's not trying to revolutionize the world. It's just trying to tell uh, a story for the here and now. And lastly, I finally managed to read and finish IDW's Revolution event from September to December of 2016. This event is the beginning of what they are calling the Hasbro-verse, connecting all of their properties into one shared universe. The main six properties include G.I. Joe and Transformers and Action Man, which they were already publishing, ROM and Micronauts, which had just started publishing, and then with this event, they brought in Mask, Mobile Armored Strike Command. Okay, a quick synopsis of the event. Optimus Prime wants to annex Earth to Cybertron's Council of Worlds, which causes tensions among the U.S. military elite, especially considering G.I. Joe has had their asses handed to them in a prior battle with Cobra, and they don't really feel like they are equipped to accept this new partnership. And then it's discovered by Action Man and others that a synthetic material called Ore 13 is primed to explode around the planet. It already tore off the top of Mount Olympus in Greece. Now, if you don't recognize the name, Ore 13 is where the Transformers get their Energon fuel. So, of course, everyone is blaming the Transformers for the destruction. And Optimus Prime realizes that, uh, that Autobot City is sitting right on top of a huge deposit of this ore. And it's not long before G.I. Joe and the Transformers start to go at it. Enter Rom Space Knight on his search for the Dire Wraiths. Uh, the Wraiths use the ore to strengthen their magics, uh, as well as to change them physically. And the Wraiths have infiltrated G.I. Joe and the government and other areas of the military, 
So with Rom's intervening, it puts him at odds against the Transformers, who in turn are now being hunted by a new group of adventurers using Cybertronian weaponry and tactics against them. And this new group is called Mask, and it's being run by Miles Mayhem. What? So then you add to all of this the Micronauts from Microspace. It is not called the Microverse. And uh, we, we find out that the ore has caused an, an entropy cloud that is in their universe and is destroying many planets and many civiliza- uh, civilizations. So coming through the cloud, the Micronauts are followed by Baron Karza, who is their big bad. Uh, he has allied himself with Miles Mayhem and with the Dire Wraiths. And Karza ends up being the big boss that everyone has to fight at the end. And then the whole thing ends with um, putting the various properties on to the next phase of um, IDW's plans, which is called Reconstruction, which means a new series called The Revolutionaries, a new event called First Strike that'll start in August, and obviously more new titles. Now, while it was a fun read, and if I was in my teens, this would be amazing, and really, I guess that's all that matters. While it was a fun read, it, it, wasn't, it was choppy. It was incredibly choppy at points. Now, if you have any interest or you have nostalgia for some of these concepts and you just have to read it, do yourself a favor. Just read the event issues themselves. Um, it's six issues, issues zero through five. You can get it on in-stock trades for 30% off, so it's only $14. The Zero issue is a prelude uh, that showed up as backups in some of their titles leading up to the event, and it was given away at San Diego Comic-Con in 2016. It acts as a nice primer to to catch readers up on the properties just prior to the event, and that was written by John Barber with art by Fico Osio, who was the artist on the main event, and the other writer on the main event was Cullen Bunn. You can actually download the the Zero Issue for free on the IDW website. Um, I think that might be a good way for you to see if it's something you want to continue with, and I'll post a link in the show notes. Now, the artist Fico Osio, he definitely is owed some major kudos for his work. He draws a killer Optimus Prime, and he does a good job of trying to keep everyone looking distinct against one another, especially when you have robots and humans and G.I. Joes and Mask, and and then you throw in Mask and, and their vehicles, and that's something else that has to have their own look. So I thought he did a, a great job of that. Some of the big battle scenes can get a little busy, especially in the last issue, But he has a few splash pages or bigger moments throughout the series that, again, if I was a kid reading this, I probably would have geeked out really hard on. So, um, uh, you know, he did a good job. He did a good job. It kind of reminds me of um, the artwork on the boxes for Transformers, for the toys, where you had that really big battle scene. And if you looked closely, you can see that there's a lot of detail, a lot of different characters. It's a bit stuffed. But surprisingly, it works, right? That's kind of what the artwork reminded me of. My biggest takeaway from the story is how everything feels connected to the Transformers. Um, You have the mask vehicles, which were created with their tech, and and they are used against the Transformers because they they can hide right alongside them, and they are undetected. And then... um, the idea of the mask vehicles transforming from from one shape to another, obviously that's a very Transformers thing. Then we find out that the origin of microspace is connected to the Transformers, and that they even speech uh, they even speak ancient Cybertronian. And uh, and then as I said, the Or thirteen, um, 
is not only an element for the Transformers, but it empowers the Dire Wraiths from ROM, and it's causing that entropy cloud uh, that's ravaging through microspace in, uh, in the Micronauts. So ultimately, in a small way, um, it kind of winds up being a mask story, since they are the newbies to this universe. Um, you're getting a lot of the, the stuff um, prior to the two teams splitting, prior to having Mask and Venom, right? We don't have Venom yet. And at this point, Miles Mayhem was the leader of Mask. So uh, that's kind of cool. And it also kicks G.I. Joe into the next phase of their existence. existence. So um, it's all Michael Bay widescreen action. If you think about it too much, it probably falls apart, and uh, the conclusion was a bit messy, but I did enjoy it. Um, there were some one-shots, Revolution one-shots, eight of them, one for ROM, Mask, Micronauts, Action Man, Transformers, Transformers Till All Are One, G.I. Joe, and then Transformers More Than Meets the Eye. A lot of those one-shots jump around in the timeline for this event. That gets a little muddy. Of all of them... I really liked Action Man um, for the art by Paolo Villanelli. I don't know. It was just something in a way that he... Uh, I think it also was the coloring. I have to give a coloring to John Paul Bove because um, it wasn't so bright as the other books. The, you know, the backgrounds really were the backgrounds. And it helped to give it a, a different flavor. Um, the artist Paolo Villanelli, he has a style that's um, very anime-inspired, but... Um, um, it, it, it's a mix of, uh, Eastern and Western ways of, of drawing comics or drawing figures. The panels, the panel layouts are kind of the same, but the way he draws action and faces kind of reminds me of that. Um, I did feel like I now want to read the Action Man miniseries because of the Revolution Action Man one shot and the artist, uh, Paolo, uh, Villanelli, he's, uh, he has now taken over Rom with issue five as the main artist. The other thing I think you should pick up if you really want to pick it up, um, pick up the Mask Revolution one-shot because that acts basically as Mask Zero. And then the Micronauts one-shot feels like it could exist between issues six and seven of their series. You could read it. You could not read it. But um, I think, uh, you know, if you get it, I don't, I don't think you'll be disappointed if you're someone who's reading Micronauts. Now, one of the really cool things is they had five variant covers for the main Revolution event, all done by John Byrne in the style of the 1982 DC Style Guide by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez that Marvel echoed for their Deluxe Ohatmu series. Um, it's a great image. I, I think I'll post it on um, the website so you can see it. And I also appreciated uh, IDW did a bunch of handbook-style entries for various characters in the event, in the back of the main event issues. I think you had about maybe 10 to 12. Um, and I love that, you know. I love anything that's comic book resource like that um, where I can read about their history and, um, you know. There is a Hasbro sourcebook uh, miniseries that IDW is picking up, putting out right now, and I think I got the first issue. So I'll have to see if it's the same style, but I, I like that. I like that little bit of extra content. And then, as, as I mentioned in one of my San Diego Comic-Con news episodes, eventually IDW is looking to bring in the visionaries into the Hasbro universe. So it took me a while to read. Revolution took me a while to read, but I'm glad I did. And um, as I said, if you, if you really want to read it, 
and you don't want to seek out the back issues, just get the trade paperback that covers the main event. All right, there you go. That's it for today's episode for the Daily Rios episode 388. As you can hear, my laptop is uh, slowly, slowly burning up. <laughs> um, if you have a promo for your podcast or for your Kickstarter or for whatever, uh, and you want me to play it, please send it over, peter at thedailyrios.com. Keep it short, you know, 45 seconds, uh, no, no more than a minute. Um, but I'm always looking for bumpers, and I'm happy to spread, spread the word of your podcast or um, anything else you're working on that you can um, put into a short little audio clip. By all means, put a comment up at the Daily Rios website, thedailyrios.com, and we will talk to you soon. See ya. Bye.